0: First Bible reading tonight comes from 2 Samuel chapter 9 and can be found on page 265 in the Bibles. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Zeba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Zeba? at your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makiah, son of Emile in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machiah, son of amiel when Mephib- mephibosheth son of jonathan the son of saul came to david he bowed down to pay him honor david said mephibosheth at your service he replied don't be afraid david said to him for i will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father jonathan i will restore you i will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Mekah, and all the members of Zeba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet.
1: Um, From Luke chapter 14, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to those to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, "'I've just bought five yoke of oxen, "'and I'm on my way to try them out. "'Please excuse me.' "'Still another said, "'I just got married, so I can't come.' "'The servant came back and reported this to his master. "'Then the owner of the house became angry "'and ordered his servant, "'Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town "'and bring in the poor, the crippled, "'the blind and the lame. "'Sir,' the servant said, "'what you ordered has been done, "'but there is still room.' Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Well, good evening, good evening. My name is James of the Pastors here. And uh, just to give you the heads up, uh, we've been working our way through the life of David uh, one of the greats in the Old Testament, and uh, every time we do a series, we take a Sunday, and today's this Sunday, where we want to give you an opportunity. For some of you, you've been hearing God's word, you've been hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's as if he's knocking on your heart, saying, I want to come in. And for some of you, you might be in that moment that says, you know what, I want to give my life to Jesus, I want to follow him, I want to ask for the forgiveness that he has freely given. And so just a heads up, we're going to Give a moment for that at the end of the sermon, an invitation for if you if you want and you're ready to become a follower of Jesus. But that's a heads up. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, every single person is in this room for a reason. It's no accident. It's no coincidence. You're the God who is in control. And we look forward, Lord Jesus, to seeing why that is the case, what you have to say to each and every one of us from your word tonight. Amen. You know, there's something natural, there's something very human, that when you experience something great, every part of you just wants to share it. It's like the first time I had Gozlemi. Ooh, you had Goslemi. It is very nice. It's a thin bread with the cheese and the spinach, and then that lemon on top. Ooh, the first time I had it, I was singing from the rooftops. Right? It's very good. Or well, the time when I went to Dangar Island up in the Hawkesbury. Right? If you've, who's been to Dangar Island? Anyone? Oh, you! A couple of it. You, you must go. It is amazing, right? Great winter day trip. No, it's a cute. Ferry. Get a nice cafe. I, made, I was telling everyone, you must go to Dangar Island, right? And then, even just this week, I went to Warringah Mall for the first time. <laughs> that is a good mall, right? And I'm telling everyone, why has no one told me about it? this? Is a great mall. There's something natural when you've experienced something great. You just want to talk. Now, last week, David, King David experienced something phenomenal, the unconditional love of God. That like David wanted to do something great for God, but God said, no, 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 David, I'm going to do something great for you. And he made a promise, a covenant with him so he can give you a, a permanent place, protection, a presence, an unconditional love for you and the generations to come. That David experienced great kindness from God and naturally show who wants to share it. Now, we need to remember that because as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9, it begins almost out of the blue. There's no intro, there's no context. It's just, boom, David asks a question. So turn with me to page 265 of you your Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 9, it begins like this David asks, uh, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, Jonathan, if you're here a couple of weeks ago, he's, he was David's best friend. But Jonathan was killed in battle. And David wants to know, is there any of his family members that I could show kindness to? Now, it's not all that out of the blue, right? Because as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jonathan and David made a promise to one another. A promise in 1 Samuel 20 that when David would be king, he would still protect Jonathan's family. But you know what? That was about 15, 20 years ago. That was a while ago, right? And there was no one else besides those two there when they made the promise. It's not like there's a lawyer coming knocking the door saying, hey, you've got to uphold your end of the bargain. No, no, no. The one he made the promise to is dead. And David is now king. He's very busy. He's got a lot on his plate. He could have easily forgotten or conveniently forgotten. But David remembers and seeks to keep his promise. You know, in an age, in our age, where marriage is seen just as a piece of paper and people don't even turn up to events that they said yes to because they didn't feel like it, being someone who keeps your word, who makes and keeps promises, is a very precious thing. See, after David had experienced God, that he is a promise maker and a promise keeper, he Wants to do the same in his own life. Even when it's too hard, doesn't feel right, it's not convenient, there's a better offer. A promise is a promise. Can I just say straight off the bat, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you represent God in all sorts of ways, and one of them is the way that you keep your word. You know when you say, yes, I'll be there. Do people presume you won't? When you say, I promise, are they words that people can trust? Because a promise is a promise. Your word is important. It's a beautiful thing. So David, what he does is this. He calls up a guy called Ziba. Verse 2. He is a servant of Saul's household. He worked for the previous king, right? If anyone knew who left of Jonathan's family, Ziba would be the guy. Verse 3. Ziba answered the king, "Are ah, there still... A son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. See, Jonathan had a son with a name that would send every Bible reader angst from here on end. His name was Meshibotheth, right? It's hard to say. And all that we know about him is he's lame in both feet. Now, to know his story, flip over with me a couple of chapters. Turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 4, right? Page 261. To know why he's lame in birth feet, 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, tells his story. It goes like this. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Meshivetheth. After a tragic accident, the result of panic Mishibatheth is now living with a disability, a paraplegic, unable to work, a walk for most of his life. Now let me just unpack a bit more about disability. In this day, there was no wheelchairs, there was no NDIS, there was no disabled parking, right? He had to be carried everywhere he went. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, because everyone had to literally work for their food, If you were disabled, you were unable to work in that day. So you were either cast out into the wilderness or, at the very best, told to beg. And there was an underlying assumption that if you had a disability, it must be because you've done something wrong. You must have sinned something in this life or the previous. modern day, we call that karma. You see that even when Jesus, you know in John 9, where there's a blind man and Jesus walks towards him? And then religious leaders ask a very callous question. Hey, Jesus, 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 did this guy, did he sin? Is he blind because he sinned or his grandparents? And what does Jesus say? Neither. In one moment, squashing the horrible idea of karma, right? No, no, neither. But then he says, but this happened. His blindness happened. So the works of God may be displayed in his life. See, Jesus is not focused on the diagnosis. No, he's saying the purpose of this disability is to display God's glory, his bigness, his grace, his love. My cousin Reese uh, had an intellectual and physical disability. And what you need to understand about my family, my extended family, has come from a Maltese background where everyone's short but very loud, right? And there's a lot of us. And so you get to a family get together, and most people think we're arguing, just talking, right? And so that's what it is, it's very loud. And then there's my cousin Reese. And he had the ability to command quietness amongst us, which is a rare thing and hard thing to do. But he would command quietness. And then he would get us all to listen to him sing a Bette Midler classic. Or uh, he would announce a trivia question from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Tragically, he died a number of years ago. He got hit by a truck. And we've had other members of our family die. But none have left a hole in our family like race. We are now disabled as a family not having him around. He brought something to our family, a, a joy, a wonder that no one else could bring. Friends, when Jesus says that this may happen so the works of God might be displayed, when he's saying when it comes to disability, lameness, blindness, whatever it may be, he says, I want to show you something that you will not see in others. I want to show you a wonder of who I am that you'll not find elsewhere. And we are going to see that in Meshibetheth. God's glory is going to shine. But you know, for Meshibetheth, his biggest problem was not actually his disability. It's who his granddad was. Verse 6. Meshibetheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now, if you're new to church, that word doesn't mean much to you, right? But if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know Saul, he was David's enemy. He was the previous king, right? And attempted in a thousand ways to eliminate David. Because Meshivetheth is his grandson, it means one thing in this context. Death. See, the standard political policy of the ancient Near East was when a king came to power, they would eliminate all competition. Literally purge, kill any son, grandson, nephew, right, who might be a threat to the throne. Everybody knew it. Everybody practiced it. Everybody believed it. So when David calls Meshivetheth, Meshivetheth is thinking he is going to his death. He's thinking kindness. Yeah, pull the other one, right? He's like, he's pretending like a snake, right? We're getting closer, ready to pounce. That is what he's thinking. And you see that, right? Meshiveth is coming, paying homage to David, and he's probably shaking, quivering with fear. And you know that because verse 7, what does David say? Don't be afraid. I see your fear. But Meshiveth, you, you will live. Now, if that was the end of the story... That would be great compared to what Mishapathah is thinking, right? Great, I'm alive, I'm free to live. But David doesn't just do the bare minimum. He then seeks to heap goodness and kindness on him. Because he goes on, don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. He, he's smothering with kindness and generosity, undeserved faith, restoring the land so that he can live, he can be sustained. But more than that, what's that last little bit? And you will always eat at my table. Uh, Susan mentioned before, next weekend we're having table for eight here at 5. Uh, at 10 a.m. Kiribati, we had table for eight this Sunday, and I had a number of people over for lunch, right? Now, in the invitation I sent to the people who came over for lunch today, there was one word that was not there that was there in David's invitation. You know what it was? Always. I mean, I really enjoyed having the people over for lunch, right? It was nice, it was good. But I'm glad they went home, right? The invitation wasn't come to my place for this meal and every other meal hereafter. They went home. But for David, he's saying, come to my table. Always. This meal and everyone after. Come to the king's table to experience the finest and for that to be the norm. But you know, it's not just an eating thing. It's more than that. Verse 11 gives us a window why it's more. It says, So Mishabath ate at, the king, at David's table like one of the king's sons. See, this is not just a king's table. This is a family table. Where David is saying to Mishabath, it's You, I want you to be my son, to be adopted into this family, to be part of this table forever, to share in the eating, the jokes, the highs and the lows, the hows with your day. I want you to become part of our family, my son. You know, one of my favorite films is Crazy Rich Asians. I love that film. Anyone else like it? Yes, I love that. I don't know what it is. I don't know. The idea, you know, when you experience a bit of racism and you just go in and you buy the whole hotel, you know, I just, I just love that, you know. If you've seen it, it's a great film. It's basically about a family who is the wealthiest in Singapore, right? They, they own everything. And then they have a son, Nick, who falls in love with Rachel. And uh, anyway, I'm going to spoil the ending. Close your ears if you don't want to hear it. But basically they end up married, right? And then Rachel gets to experience all the wealth of this family. It's hers. She gets to eat at their table. She gets to experience everything, the wealth and all that. But you know what? Imagine if Crazy Rich Asians went like this. Then Nick went out to the streets of Singapore and found an older lady, haggard, homeless, disabled, deformed, and said, hey, I want you to come into our family. I want you to be part of this table and invites her in and becomes part of the family. Now that would put the crazy back into crazy rich Asians, wouldn't it? Because you don't expect that. I mean, you expect the beautiful, young, successful woman to be part of the family, but not the other. And Meshiveth, he cannot believe his ears at this invitation. He says, verse 8, What is your servant that you would notice a dead dog like me. Now that is a stark sad phrase, isn't it? Dead dog. I presume that's what people called him growing up. And it's funny, you know, when you hear something enough on the lips of others, you start to believe it and that is who you are, it becomes your identity. He thinks he's a dead dog. Lifeless, useless, a dog the lowest of the low. But here David esteems him and says, No, you may think you're the lowest of the low, but I want you to have the highest of high positions sitting next to me. You may think you're a dead dog. You are my son. There is life in you. And as Meshavoth hears this, he asks, Why? Why me? Who are you that you would do this? See, grace, undeserved love, always strikes at the human heart, and we ask those questions, why? Why would you do this? What's motivating you? What's the catch? What do I have to do? But you know, David doesn't answer. He just goes about and does it. But we know the answer, don't we? See, David has experienced radical, undeserved love from God, and he wants to show it to Masshebatheth. And if you are amazed in the slightest bit at David's love towards him, that, friends, is just an echo, just a taste, just an entree of God's love for you. See, at the very beginning, there the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who've been there for all eternity said, "You know, who? Who can we show kindness to? And they thought of you. That you would experience what they have been experiencing for all eternity, love. And they made you, but because of sin, because of shame, like Adam and Eve, and like my that we are in hiding. We are hiding in different ways because of things that have been done to us or things that we have done. And we are hiding. And yet, the King comes. The Lord Jesus comes. He comes to find you, to seek you out. To say, I know what you've done. I know you've passed. I know what you call yourself. I know what you think you are, and yet you're mine. I want you. Crutches, liabilities, hang-ups, all of it. I still want you. And I want you part of my table, part of my place in heaven forever. You know, when David invited Meshavah to his table, David would have experienced a bit of shame in his time. There would have been people rolling their eyes thinking, what is he doing here? But it is nothing compared to the shame that Jesus went through to have you at his table. See, in order to have you at his table, you know what Jesus did? He went to that cross and he experienced unworthiness so that you would be worthy. He experienced defilement so that you would be clean. He experienced repulsiveness so that you would be loved. He was rejected so that you would be welcomed and welcomed forever. So the removal of all your sin and shame, friends, means that Jesus sees you not as you, say you who you say you are, but who he says you are. And that is a son, a daughter of the Most High. You know what the Bible is? One big story of the relentless pursuit of God to have you at his table forever. I'm going to invite our sister in Christ, Naomi Deckard. And uh, I'm going to get Naomi to share a bit more personally when it comes to this passage. Naomi Deck is our community care director. And uh, Naomi, 15 years ago, uh, you were involved in a terrible, horrific car accident which by says you should have died, but miraculously you lived, but it had a massive impact on you physically and mentally. You can you tell us a bit about that impact?
3: Yeah, so um, that was a moment in my life that changed it instantly. Uh, basically, I was on my way from uni to work and I made it to work that day just in a coma in a helicopter instead of my car. Um, it was raining really heavily, like it's been raining the last few weeks, and uh, my car spun out of control and was sitting across the road. And a lady T-boned me at 100k on my passenger side and I split my car in half. And uh, I basically got broken from head to toe. And so I broke uh, my leg and my back, but I had a severe traumatic brain injury. And uh, as a result of that, uh, your brain's the boss of your body, right? And so the boss got broken and so yeah. nothing worked anymore. Yeah, okay. I had to relearn how to do everything again. So things that you don't expect as an adult to have to do, learn how to do, like um, sitting, (laughs) swallowing, walking, having a filter, uh, all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the impact still still to this day?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I've got these things because I keep falling over. I've got a leg brace that's not a police tracking device, just FYI. Um, (laughs) I've also got quadruple vision, so I see four of everything all the time and my glasses just make you clearly four. Yeah, wow. It's a big crowd today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so, like, I I mean, the challenge with a brain injury, like, I've always got a brain injury, right? It doesn't just go away. Um, and so I work really hard every day to put the Naomi show on. Mm. Um, but, yeah, God has been very kind to me in my recovery. And so the doctors, they can't clinically explain the outcome that I've had. Yeah, and wow. I'm like... Yeah. Got a pretty good God. <laughs> he, like, knitted me together then and keeps knitting me now.
2: Can I ask, uh, Ms. Shivathathath, he saw himself as a dead dog. <laughs> what do you, do, you, do you see yourself as mm. as you've gone on this journey?
3: Yeah, I think um, that dead dog phrase kind of bites. Um, and I think you kind of get typecast for your injury. And so you're kind of told, uh, th- these are the bits that you have broken. This is what your outcome is going to be, right? And we were particularly told I wasn't going to recover anymore after two years. And I was just like, come on, why not? Mm. Like, And I was like, you don't know my God and you don't know me, right? Mm. And so I've just kept getting better. Um, and so that dead dog thing, uh, yeah, as I said, it bites because it's an attack on who you are, your identity. And I think I didn't want to be tied to that identity of of the disability necessarily. I mean, absolutely, I live with it and I own it, but I don't want that to be who I am, <laughs> mm, yeah. right? And so I really cling to the hope of the future that comes yeah. through comes through him, yeah.
2: A number of years ago, before all this, you prayed an uh, interesting prayer. Yeah. What was that prayer?
3: Yeah, so I prayed, I was praying for about six months before the accident happened. I can't give you a rational reason why I was praying this, but I did. Um, I was praying that God would reveal himself to me in a way that I couldn't deny. I was a Christian, but um, I prayed that prayer and I'm glad that I prayed that prayer because I can't deny him, James. Mm. I can't deny the grace and the love and the mercy that he has shown me. And I think um, a lot of people say to me like, oh, I can't believe that you still believe in God after all this. And I'm like, I can't believe you don't. Like, mm. t- to me, it just seems obvious, right? Mm. Um, and so I... I think my body is a constant reminder of the hope that I have for the future. Of I can't wait until I'm in heaven and I don't have to think about my uncooperative body. It's just going to go. Yeah. Um so I look forward to that time and um it's going to be great. <laughs>
2: yeah. Final thing, you what does it mean to you the fact that Jesus has invited you to his table? Forever? Yeah,
3: it's um it's beautiful and an honor and it's one of those things that you almost can't believe, but he has. And so you, I just can't see how you'd say no to that. Mm. Like, it's better than anywhere you'll ever go. Mm. <laughs> you'll ever eat, or whatever, right? Yeah. Well, however, you want to take that metaphor. But um, I'm honoured and privileged to be called to that table, and I plan on eating up. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> right. Please let's thank our sister, Naomi. Friends, I just want to mention one more thing before I'm closing. It's the last verse of this chapter. And it may have struck you as quite odd. It goes like this. And Mishibbeth hath lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Now, why end like that? It seems a bit cruel to reminding us again of he's lame in both feet. It's almost like salt of the wound, doesn't it feel? You know why It's there. Because Mashivat's need was obvious and it never went away. He knew being at the king's table was always undeserved kindness and it'll always be that. He was reminded of it again and again that he came to the king's table, he was there by grace, and he remains there by grace. The friends, the problem when it comes to God is not actual disability, it's ability there is a big problem in being abled because there is a presumption, oh, I'm fine, I don't need help, I'll get to heaven, I'm a nice person, I'm capable, I'll do it. You see this presumption in the parable Jesus told where people were invited to a banquet and they were very capable people and they missed out. But who came? Who accepted it? The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Imagine if Meshibeth had said to David, no, David, thanks for the offer, but I'm going to see if there's a better offer on hand. I'm going to see if there's other alternatives. I'll get back to you. No, he jumped at it. See, those who know their need accept it. When they see an invitation like this, they see it for what it is, undeserved grace and favor. And they do not hesitate. As John Gretzer said, if you want to become a Christian, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But very few people have that. Friends, there is an open invitation for you to come, and sit at the Lord's table, with him forever. And do not think, though, friends, what most Aussies think, that the default is, ah, oh, I'll get there. I'll just naturally drift there. No, no, no. The default position for every human being is like Mishibatheth. The destiny is death, or as Jesus calls in our context, hell. Unless the king steps in, and he has the Lord Jesus, and he offers you an invitation with him forever. You know, Ruthana Metzger is a professional singer, and she was asked to perform at a wedding of a very, very, very wealthy man, and then invited to come along to the reception. Now, this reception was on the tallest skyscraper in Seattle, and it was two levels of the entire skyscraper. It was the wedding reception. Millions of dollars would be spent on it, right? Ice sculptures, lobsters galore. There was uh, whatever cocktail you want, they were making it, right? Different rooms, different bands. It was all out. And Ruth Anna, sang at the wedding with her husband Ruth, went to the reception. There they see the maitre d'. And the maitre d' says, what's your names? Ruthana Metzger and Roy. How do you spell it? They spelled it out. Hmm, your name's not here. Uh, check again. They checked. No, it's not here. And Ruthana said, there must be some mistake. I sung at the wedding. And the maitre d' said, well, I don't care who you are or what you've done. If your name's not here, you're not getting in. And both of them walked away. From that reception. And Roy asked his wife, what happened? And she said this, when the invitation arrived, I was busy. I never bothered to RSVP because besides I was the singer, surely I'd get into the reception without needing to. And then she began to cry. She'd missed out. And what she experienced is a taste that you and I could experience when it comes to the Lord's table, heaven itself. That if you say, I'm oh, too busy, or presume, look what I've done, surely I'll get in. You won't. The only way in, the only way in is accepting the invitation by the King, the Lord Jesus. It, comes, it starts by knowing who you are, that you have nothing to offer and everything to receive. Then it is seeing the radical kindness of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, saying yes, accepting it. So I'm going to give you an opportunity right now. If that is you, if you've not made that RSVP to God, as it were, saying, yes, I want this undeserved kindness. Yes, I want your forgiveness and love. Yes, I want to be a son and daughter of yours. Then I'm going to get you to pray this prayer with me and that you do that very thing ask Jesus into your life. So I'm going to all to bow our heads. And if this is you, to say these words in your heart to God as I pray. Dear God, sorry that I have sinned against you and rejected you as God over my life. Thank you that Jesus died on that cross in my place, making it possible for me to be friends with you again. Please forgive me. Please come into my life. Please help me to live from this day forward with Jesus as my Saviour and my Lord. Amen. You know, the Bible says in Romans 10, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And friends, if you called on the Lord, if you prayed that prayer, no, you walked into this building, a sinner, and you lead forgiven. That you've made a thousand decisions in your life, but there is no greater decision than the decision you have just made. And right now, I tell you this, there is a party in, ha- in heaven happening right now at what you've done. And so we here at 5 o'clock, we want to give you a round of applause for the decision you've just made. Because there is nothing better <laughs> than what you have just done. What I would love us all to do now is to grab on your seats this card. This is an invitation card. And whether you prayed that prayer or you didn't, there's something here for you. And so I'd love you to grab that pen that's nearby it. And there's five boxes here. One box is definitely for you. The first three, name, service, email, you know what to do there. But let me just go through the next boxes. The first one is I've accepted Jesus' invitation to become a disciple today. If that is you, you prayed that prayer, we would love to rejoice with you, celebrate with you, and help you take those next steps. That box is for you. The next box is you might have doubts. You might have questions. You might have a whole bunch of things going, you know, who is this Jesus? What does that mean? That next box is for you to attend one of our explore courses that's coming up. You might be visiting for the day. That's your box. If you want to get baptised, confirmed, or share your testimony publicly, circle which one is for you. And the last one is, uh, I've committed to following Jesus in this way. What Susan and I do uh, is we pray for you, and we'd love to know specifically what we can pray for you, something God's been speaking to your life, some need in your life. If you write that down, then Susan and I go away and pray for you specifically. So if you want to take a moment now to fill that in, and then do the next song, the bags will be passed around, and you can pop that in. I'll give you a moment to fill that in.